Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about how through our relationship with Christ and his spirit, we can have access to the mind of God in the future that he has for us. When we put our wholehearted trust in Christ as our resurrected Lord, our Savior, we receive his spirit. We're indwelled by the spirit of God. And when this happens, we have access to the mind of Christ and therefore can have a glimpse into the future, a vision of the future that God has for us. One of our source texts uh, for this series has been from 1 Corinthians 2, where the Apostle Paul is writing in the first century to the church in Corinth, and he says, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." I love this. So, so Paul is basically telling us that when we're looking at our futures, when we're making plans for our lives, we must remember that we have the spirit of Christ within us, and a spirit knows the thoughts of the mind that has that spirit. And since we have the spirit of God, the spirit of God can, if you will, kind of mine or, or delve into the thoughts of, of God, and we have that spirit within us us, therefore we can have a glimpse into the mind of God. And as God knows what is to take place and the best routes that we can take in our lives, we can therefore have a glimpse into the plan God has for our future and therefore craft a vision for the future of our lives. Um, And so essentially it's the Spirit of God that guides us in envisioning our future. The Spirit of God guides us in envisioning our future. And I love how Paul begins to, to end out that, that, uh, that piece of Scripture right there, where he says, you have the Spirit of God, but then there's the Spirit of the world, which is the, spirit, which is the world that does not have the Spirit of God within them. And oftentimes in your lives, when you're looking at your futures and you're making, making uh, uh, God-guided plans, and you're trying to figure out how to instill values in your family, you're figuring out how to spend your time. You're figuring out how to spend your money, uh, what job you're going to work, where you're going to serve, where you're, all these kinds of things that the world can look at us and because they do not have the, the spirit of God and understand the way in which God is operating or working and judge us and think that we might be foolish because of the way in which we're crafting our future. However, because we have the Spirit of God, we can trust that we are living the best future because we are given the Spirit so that we can make proper judgments about all things, so that we can look and be discerning and have wisdom from God, which is different from wisdom without God. So as all of us are on this journey and have been in this journey in the series of, of talking about how we, can, how, how we can create a vision for our future with God, we can trust that it's God is guiding us in this process And it might look different from what society and the world expects. It might look different from what your family expects. It might look different from what your friends or coworkers expect when you're making decisions about what your future is supposed to look like. But we as believers have to cultivate the mind of Christ that is given to us by the Spirit. 
this is incredibly important, I believe, uh, uh, to, to remember and to think about, and it's essential, because when we are left to our own devices to make plans for our futures, we can sometimes choose paths that are more in line with our dreams rather than the dreams of God. When we're left to our own devices and when we're planning our future on our own, we will do things that are in line with our dreams rather than God's dreams. For instance, there's a story in our recommended reading from this trimester um, called The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg. You could still pick that book up in, uh, in our resource lounge or pick it up online. It's a really great book about developing spiritual habits in our lives. And there's a story about uh, people who are trying to live out, as I would say, their own dreams rather than God's dreams. He tells the story of Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. They're three chronic psychiatric patients at a hospital in Michigan who were diagnosed with psychotic delusional disorders and narcissism. Each believed that they were the reincarnation of Jesus Christ and that the world revolved around them. A psychologist, Milton Rokich, he worked with them for two years trying to help them. And as Orpberg writes, change came hard. It was as if they were not sure they could bear to live if they weren't who they thought they were. They could be very rational in other aspects of life, but as Rokich put it, they would hold on to messianic delusions, even though they are grotesque, ego-defensive distortions of reality. With little to lose, Rokich decided to try an experiment. He put the three men into one small group. That would be a very fun small group. We're starting a new life group at TLCC. It's the Messiah Complex life group. For two years, the three delusional messiahs were assigned adjacent beds, ate every meal together, worked together at the same job, and met daily for group discuss discussions. Rokich wanted to see if rubbing up against uh, other would-be messiahs might diminish their delusion, a kind of messianic 12-step recovery group. The experiment led to some interesting conversations. One of the men would claim, I'm the messiah, the son of God. I am on a mission. I was sent here to save the earth. Rokich would ask, well, how do you know this? He would respond, God told me. And then one of the other patients would counter, I never told you any such thing. <laughs> Every once in a while, one of the men would get a glimmer of reality. Leon eventually decided that he wasn't actually married to the Virgin Mary after all. Now she was just his sister-in-law. That's improvement. The progress never lasted long, however. The bitter irony is that the very delusion to which they clung so tenaciously is what cut them off from life. To maintain the illusion that you are the Messiah, you must shut out any evidence to the contrary. If you want to be your own God, you have to settle for living in a tiny universe where there is room for only one person. Your world could grow infinitely bigger if you were only willing to become appropriately small. As extreme as this example is of pridefulness and ego and creating your own dream, to be honest, as I read this, I almost felt convicted because in some way or another, I make myself and the vision that I think that God has for my life, I often make myself inappropriately big in the future. When in reality, we must remember that the vision that God has for us we are not the messiahs, the ones who are on the mission to save the world, and everything revolves around us. Oftentimes when I'm reading scripture, and it's talking about humility or whatever, about making yourself small and, and subjecting yourself to the leadership of God and service, I'm always making, making scripture that tells me to not care about myself, about myself somehow. All right, when we often read scripture, it's, well, how does this apply to me? What does this do for my life? 
how does this apply to our context today? How does this, those are the, the, the questions typically at the surface of our minds when we're reading Scripture. Well, I think that's a big reason why a lot of us have difficulty reading the Old Testament. Why don't we often read the Old Testament? Just think about that. It's often because it's a story that we don't figure out how it applies to us. When in reality, it's telling the story of God's redemptive plan for the entire world. But because oftentimes, and I say this kind of in jest and in group, uh, you know, sadness sometimes where we do things like this, is that because the New Testament has pithy statements that sound good and can quickly apply to our lives and inspire us, so we'll read more of that, but we leave out the stuff that's not in the story that doesn't seem to directly be about us. You get what I'm saying? Even when we're engaging in Scripture, in reading God's word about what he's doing for the world, his big redemptive plan, that we can still sometimes make ourselves the center of the entire story. In reality, I believe, if in, 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 in relation to Scripture and what God calls us to do, if we want to live truly fulfilling lives and have big futures that are God-inspired and meaningful, we must make ourselves appropriately small in the story and service-oriented in God's vision for the future. We must see ourselves as playing a part of the bigger story, but not being the story itself. Sometimes I, I, I will be driving, and uh, I actually try and force myself to do this, and I'll look around as cars go by. It's such a brief glimpse of people, right? And I'll just look at someone driving, and it blows my mind. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, to realize that there's some person driving that car, going somewhere, and they just came from somewhere, and they have a whole life and a whole story and emotions and experiences. And to be honest, sometimes I'm so selfish and prideful, and I become like, I should go to the Messiah 12-step recovery group sometimes. And I forget that there's billions of people who have stories and experiences and hopes and visions. And when I make myself the center of my entire story, I make myself inappropriately big and don't have a humility to where I'm actually working towards a plan that is inclusive of all of us as God envisions a future for the world. Approaching it like this, I think it sounds kind of trite and obvious uh, up front at kind of first blush. However, it's extremely countercultural, I believe, because society in a certain sense is, is a lot about self. I quoted this guy last time I spoke, but he became relevant again this week, a sociologist named Christian Smith, who's very famous, who I will sue at some point. Um, you're a little older than I am, so I don't know how that would work out. Maybe I'll sue his parents. And uh, he wrote a book uh, with someone named Melinda Lundquist Denton, and they did this study of American youth and uh, essentially the, the spiritual foundation and beliefs across American youth. Uh, and they did a study of 3,000 different teenagers and interviewed them, what they believe, what their values are. And they came up with a handful of values in this book called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And the term that they came up with to describe uh, all of the kind of the, the handful of beliefs that, that were across the spectrum of American youth was a term called moralistic therapeutic deism. My guess is some of you are familiar with that phrase. It's become uh, fairly ubiquitous among both uh, secular and uh, religious thinkers and sociologists to describe teenage spirituality in America. 
So I'm going to read through a few of these points and then uh, of what they be- of what uh, youth tend to believe, um, and then pull some points from it. So in moralistic therapeutic deism, the first point is that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Second, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Third. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Fourth, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think what we see as a central point of worldview, of youth culture, and this does not only apply to youth culture because youth culture inherited their belief system from the culture above them, right, of who taught them. So in some sense, this is reflective of an entire kind of American spiritual system. And a lot of you are probably, and fairly, we have all have to work through this stuff, read this list of four things, and it goes, well, that sounds pretty nice. What's potentially instructive or encouraging or convicting about that list? I, what we see here in point number two is that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And that's where this term moralistic, therapeutic deism comes into play. There's a morality to it. There's like a good and bad, treat people right and wrong. But ultimately, it's all therapeutic for ourselves. It's about ourselves still. Even when you go to point one, God wants, to be, God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other. And God does not need to, in point three, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when you need it. Good people go to heaven when they die. It's all still centered on, let me be happy. Let me feel good about myself. So even in an ethic that's trying to promote goodness among other people, the goodness is still centered on ourselves. On us becoming the big part of us being happy and fulfilled and feeling good about our life. To where even today, we have a big service culture in our society, and it's wonderful. And I don't want to diminish that at all. Wonderful nonprofit work, people spending a lot of time. I know in high schools, a lot of times you have mandatory hours that you have to spend going and serving other people. But I think that a lot of times, our you should be nice to other people. And us saying that we should go and serve other people is often about serving ourselves. Service that we engage in of making ourselves kind of, at least looking like we're making ourselves small to go and serve other people is often still about ourselves. And so a lot of people will say, well, I want to go serve in this kind of way because it makes me feel good. And that's great. We want it to feel good, right? There are a lot of times I serve and it feels wonderful. But what about when service doesn't feel great? Does that mean we don't serve? What about when service is difficult or it's hard or it makes us possibly not feel good about ourselves or not happy for a momentary stretch of time? Does that mean that we don't serve? Whereas in our culture, sometimes service can be about ourselves because we operate with a spiritual system, a societal system, and even a view of God, a theology of self, where we make ourselves the center of things, then whenever we're going out and serving, frequently we can still be the motive of our service, which is wildly ironic and difficult. Does anyone get what I'm saying? Am I the only one who's experienced this myself? I feel very shamed right now. 
The fact is that this is uh, kind of flies in the face of the Christian value of, of, of how we're supposed to live our lives, treat other people, see ourselves in relation to the story of God. What we find in the Christian story is a God who lived in a perfect, self-sufficient, Trinitarian relationship before the creation of the world. However, he decided to go and to create the world despite the fact that it would cause him harm and suffering in some unfathomable kind of way. That he decided to create people who he would love, that he knew would reject him and would cast him off and rebel against him and curse him. And he created this world and these people while knowing that he would have to come into the world and die and suffer in order to save them. See, our God, again, in some, there's a mystery to it and a difficulty to even describe it, but our God even approaches us in a way that it's almost like he doesn't make himself uh, the imposing figure that's saying, well, I'm just going to get what I want and I'm going to do it the way that I want. He came in a posture of service and sacrifice in order to create a future with all of us, where we all can thrive and be fulfilled in the best possible way. I love this passage in, in Matthew um, where a mother asks Jesus if her son can have an honorable position in the kingdom that Jesus is going to rule. So as people began to believe that, that, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Messiah was this figure who would come and to establish likely a physical kingdom on earth in the way that you would take over and fight and to, and to, to fight the empire that had uh, kind of subjected uh, many of the Jewish people to suffering. And so they thought that this Messiah was going to come kind of with a sword and on a horse and, and, and take over and establish this imposing uh, Jewish theocratic kingdom. And so this mother, the, the mother of Zebedee's sons, comes and asks Jesus if her kids can have a place in that kingdom at the right and left hand of God. I played a lot of sports go- growing up, and it's the worst feeling when you see after a practice or a game your parent talking to the coach. It's just like, oh, no, mom, dad. Like, mom, don't be like the mother of Zebedee's sons, please. That's a great retort to a parent. Um, don't be like the, the, the mother of Zebedee's sons. And she basically goes, this would be kind of embarrassing if you're the kid, right? Like, she goes and says, hey, can you, let my, like, can you let my kids play? Can my kids get on the court, please? Not only that, can they, like, be the starters who, like, the entire offense is running through or whatever it might be? And so they're put in this situation where she's approaching him and saying, hey, I want my kids to have this special place, this place of honor and prestige in the kingdom that you're going to establish. Here's how Matthew 20 reads. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him, Jesus. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten disciples heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God in the world, and that's exactly what he did. But what we expected, what the world expected, is that God would come on a flaming chariot with a big sword and a big army and wipe everyone out and assert his authority and dominance. And as people came to Jesus wanting to be a part of that kingdom, they said, I want to be at either side of that big, prestigious, glorious, powerful throne. And what Jesus says all throughout Scripture, what he continually does is he flips the kingdom upside down and goes, what you think is power is weakness, and what you think is weakness is power. If you want to be a part of my upside-down kingdom, then you have to drink the cup of suffering that I'm going to drink. You have to serve as I am going to serve. There's a beautiful story where Peter, I, don't, I wasn't planning on talking about this, where, where, uh, where Jesus is, is washing the feet of his disciples. This is God. It's, hard, it's easy to forget that for myself sometimes. This is God who's in the world bringing his kingdom, and instead of demanding his disciples do whatever, like bring him grapes and wave him with like palm leaves, while he's wearing a toga or something, Instead, as they enter the house, he washes their feet. And Peter, what does he do? He goes, he goes, no, no, you can't be doing this. Why? Because he was putting himself in a position of service. And the king is not supposed to be a servant. The king is supposed to be a powerful, authoritative leader. Jesus flipped the kingdom to be, for us to be honored in the kingdom. We must drink the cup that Jesus drank and serve the way that Jesus served. If we want to sit at the right hand of God as he rules his kingdom and his kingdom grows and is established, then we must come together as with the hearts of servants. We must come together with the hearts of servants. First century Christians uh, took this call to service extremely seriously. This is very illuminating as I was reading this uh, this week. Sometimes it's really good to go back to the first century and to look at what Christians were doing in that time because they were closer to when Christ was actually teaching and saying things, and then the disciples are learning from that and trying to carry it, carry it out, possibly in a more uh, kind of pure way from what was being said in that time. So if we go back to the first century, sometimes we can see more and more uh, what was actually being taught or how they were taking what Jesus was teaching. And so uh, this great New Testament scholar named Craig Keener he, uh, he, he, he picks out three different areas of service and sacrifice uh, and from the first century church and what they did, and he contrasts it to 21st century Christianity and how we serve and what we sacrifice today. And he picks uh, three different ones. He talks about stewardship, evangelism, and justice ministry. So for the first, let's talk about evangelism uh, in the first century, Christians often laid their lives on the line and sometimes died for their witness. They were persecuted. They were jailed. They were killed. They were constantly suffering, and they would become social outcasts. And Christians still would evangelize and witness for Christ. And then as, uh, as Keener says of 21st century Christians, 
we try to be at least as nice as non-Christians, so that if anyone discovers we are Christians, we will not have been a bad witness in, the, in case that person ever figures out what Christians actually believe. Kind of true. Sometimes it's like, well, I need to be good enough in front of this person because if they realize I'm a Christian and I go to church and what I actually believe, then that would be super awkward. That's what witnessing and evangelism can look like, like to us today. Uh, then he talks about stewardship. And he says, the early Christians sacrificed their resources to care for the poor so much that the upper class pagans mocked them for their lack of discernment. Meanwhile, the church was converting the poor of the empire who saw the Christians' love for them. In the first century, the, the, the Christians, there's literally writings of leaders, powerful leaders, right? And how we typically see the kingdom, powerful leaders who were looking at the weakness the, the, the foolishness of wealthy Christians who are giving away so much of their money to the poor to try and help them that the powerful leaders were saying, you guys are all foolish. You have no discernment. But remember what, what 1 Corinthians says, that first passage we read, where we have the judgment, the discernment of God that might look foolish to the world, the powers of the world sometimes. So that's what they were doing in the first century. They were giving away so much money that they looked foolish to people. He contrasts this to the, to the stewardship of the 21st century. The average North American Christian tithes 2.5% of his or her income. I'm not trying to make a specific point around this, but just to draw the contrast sometimes of the service of 1st century and then sometimes how we uh, might have difficulty doing this today. And then finally, when it comes to justice ministries, and this is very poignant, the first century Christians were so bent on serving others that some members of the early church were buying slaves that were already enslaved, buying them from other people, empowering them with skills, and freeing them. And then, as Keener says very dryly, for 21st century Christians, whenever we experience difficult or unresolvable conflicts with other Christians, we sue them. This is also terribly difficult because, honestly, like, as I'm reading this, and, it, like, a lot of what I've said today is already very convicting, like, moral therapeutic deist, ah, we don't really believe in God, we aren't being service-oriented, we're being selfish, we're being, you know, like, look at us compared to the early church. Some of it can be true in certain circumstances, other elements, others of us might not struggle as much, but the reality is, is that I'm kind of reading this, and it's like a laugh cry at the same time, like, the conviction of God saying, wow, there's so much more room and area for growth in our lives, in the church. And guess what? God is already doing incredible things through the global church and through you. And imagine as we adopt even more a disposition of sacrifice and service, how much God can continue to do through us. These first century Christians took service so seriously because the kingdom of God is built and established through our service. The loving reign and rule of God is built through the body of Christ coming together to create the future with God through the power of his Holy Spirit. See, after Christ came to the world, he died on the cross, provided the ability for us to be saved from our sins, and he died, he was buried, he resurrected, he was here for 40 days, and then he ascended. Meaning, Jesus isn't physically here today, right? Jesus isn't physically here today. However, when he left, he said that if we believe in him, then he gives us the gift of his spirit, the thing that allows us to have the mind of Christ, to see the future, to get a vision of what God has for us. 
Meaning, when we come together in the world, we all have the Spirit of Christ, and we are the ones who are accomplishing the work of Jesus Christ in this world. I think oftentimes uh, uh, we, we, we can look at it and it's like, we think that if God's going to do something or do something important, that it's just kind of up to God. Like, God's going to do what God does. Like, it's up to, like, I'm just going to let God do him. I'm going to let go. Jesus, take the wheel. Anyone? Let go, Jesus, take the wheel theology. And I was here, I heard a story the other day from this, uh, this UK theologian. He was talking with an American woman, and this was back when WWJD bracelets were really popular. Remember those days? I used to wear like 60 on my wrist. Um, and uh, WWJD bracelets really popular, and she's talking to this UK theologian, and she's like, like, hey, like these bracelets, it's out of control. Like, I don't know why all the American youth are wearing them. And he was like, well, like in the UK, super secular, a little bit more progressive in, in, in uh, belief systems towards skepticism than we are in America. And he was like, look, it'd be great if the, if the youth in the UK were wearing them. Like, that'd be awesome. And she was like, no, 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 you don't understand. The other day, I'm telling my daughter to clean her room. And she's like, well, I don't want to clean my room. And she goes and she, she points at the WWJD bracelet. And she was like, the mother was like, well, what would Jesus do? implying clean the room. And the daughter goes, no, Jesus would just go zap and the entire room would be clean. <laughs> this is how we can look at God sometimes, is that if, if something is going to happen for God, then God's just going to do it. He's powerful enough. God will do his stuff. When in reality, we have to remember that it is God and his spirit doing God's stuff through us. God is empowering us to clean the metaphorical room. And this is the room. This is the wilderness. This is the world around us that God in his spirit is not saying, hey, I've already saved you from your sins. Now go sit in, uh, sing kumbaya and sit in the fetal position in your room in your bed and pray until we all die and go to heaven. He's going, no, look, when Jesus came, he said, I became king by my death and my resurrection, and I have a kingdom that is being established and built in this world, and you are the image bearers, my, my vice regents, my governors in the world who are leading the Jesus way and continuing to establish the kingdom in a way no one else expected. That is our mission. That is our calling, and that's exciting. And that's when sometimes when we can feel convicted about certain ways in which we approach sacrifice or service or selfishness, and then we realize the big vision that God has for your life to continue to be the governors, the vice regents of the kingdom that he's establishing in his world. That's when we get a big picture for the future, of which we are an essential part, but we are not the future. We have to get ourselves out of being the picture of our future and get ourselves as being a part of the picture of the future and a part that God needs. So there's two sides to this. One, we have to make ourselves appropriately small, right? But then we also have to realize that God's doing his work through us. There's this tension here. Well, we're going, God's doing it through me. God's doing it through you. He's doing it through us together. But also, I am not the entire vision of the future. So when you're looking at your life and you're looking about your future, and I, I try and do this and it's terribly difficult, but planning, what, what, asking God, what do you have for me, is I often, it's all about me. It's all about what I'm trying to do, what God's doing through me. And I have to constantly reorient my mind to say, God, what am I doing for others by the power of your spirit. 
How are you using me? How is my life entirely a life of sacrifice and service? Sacrifice and service, sacrifice and service. Not honor and pride and glory and... Because honor and pride and glory in the kingdom are sacrifice and service. So as we envision this life that God dreams for us, we have to continue to, to have this centrality of a sacrificial service in life. But what does this look, look like for us? I think practically there are some obvious ways in terms of, in terms of every day at, at, at work, uh, you, can, you can be a servant to those who you are leading or those who are leading you or to peers and coworkers. In your families, with your friends, you can have a heart of service and constantly saying, how am I serving, how am I serving? In a, in a proper and appropriate kind of way. But then also, we have to remember that, again, as I said, remember that we're, we're the body of Christ together. Each of us have the Spirit of God. Jesus is not physically here. He's in the heavenly realm, the heavenly dimension, the place in which the throne of God is and rules. And so we're in the world. Jesus is not here, but we all have the Spirit. And therefore, when we all come together, we, in some kind of literal but not exact way, are the body, the physical manifest manifestation of Christ in the world. So that if we do not come together in service as a church community— then Christ is not present in the world doing his work. It's pretty much what it comes to. Is that the work of, of God is left to the church because we are the presence of God in the world. And I don't want to, uh, uh, to, to say that there aren't good things that people who aren't Christians, that they can't do good things. Right? I think there's a common grace thing. And I don't want to, to, to limit God in saying he can't utilize someone. It seems like there are places in Scripture, people who aren't believers, who affect something good or, or work in the plan of God in some kind of surprising way that works towards a good. However, remember, we have the Spirit that's judging and discerning. We're given access to this about how to go our work so that even if two people are going towards the same goal, going about it in a servant kind of way might seem foolish to the world. But it gets to the goal in a way that no one would have ever expected that would have been way more effective than anyone ever could have planned. If we use our pride, power, how do we just get it done? How are we just making sure that we're getting where we're trying to go? Both goals could possibly even be attained. But the way of God and the discernment that the Spirit can give us can lead us towards a kingdom project opposed to a worldly project or a self-project or a selfish project or a pride project. It might even affect something good for other people, but because we didn't go about it in the way of service that the Spirit has guided us, then we may never even know what we missed out on unless we had done it with Christ. And so all of us together have a unique plan and project that God has set out for us, but we must come together as a church community, as a localized manifestation of the body of Christ in order to sacrifice and serve what God is doing in the world. And so what does this look like? As we build the kingdom as the body of Christ together, you know what kingdom building looks like? Standing out in 28 degree weather in the parking lot and helping people in and welcoming them. It's stuffing seat back pockets on a Saturday for a couple of hours, every single Saturday, so that you can be equipped and prepared with the things that you need. That's kingdom building. 
It's going and spending hours a week serving kids in Kport. That's kingdom building. It's our band and singers that come at 6 a.m. unpaid and practice all throughout the week and spend eight hours at church on a Sunday morning sacrificing their time and talents and skills with no tangible worldly result of sex, of success that's self-aggrandizing. That's kingdom building. It's greeting someone as they walk in a door. That's kingdom building. It's working in a life cafe and serving people a warm cup of coffee. That's kingdom building. All of these things come together, right? One thing might look like a hand, and it's like, well, what's the point of that? What's the purpose of that? What does it matter if there's a piece of paper in a seat back pocket? Or what does it matter if there's, you know, one more teacher that's helping with this? What does it matter if there's one more singer? Like, ah, someone can do this. Someone can do that. Someone can. That's not important. That's too big for me. I, I can't do that. When in reality, God's calling you to do something that stretches you. All of us come together to create this beautiful thing. And you look around this room and you realize this is the result of people who were sacrificing in service to build and establish and live as kingdom people. All of us have opportunities to come together and to serve God in the mission of what God's doing in this world, particularly in the local church, right? All throughout our lives we should be doing this. But there is a unique way in which the church and this is just scriptural, and I, could go, I don't have enough time to go through all scripture of this kind of stuff today. But constantly throughout scripture is talking about serve one another, serve one another, serve one another, serve one another. Take care of the brother and sister. We all have the chance to sacrifice in service for the kingdom of God together. There's this, uh, there's two more things here, and then we'll uh, sing a song and be off for the day. Um, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a, a German theologian during World War II who ended up being martyred in trying to take down Nazi Germany. And it's a good person to hear from on sacrifice and service. And he says, All the members of the community, the church, are given their special place. This is no longer the place, however, in which they can most successfully promote themselves, but the place where they can best carry out their service. In a Christian community, everything depends on whether each individual is an indispensable link in a chain. The chain is unbreakable only when even the smallest link holds tightly with the others. A community that allows the presence of members who do nothing will be destroyed by them. Thus, it is a good idea that all members receive a definite task to perform for the community so that they may know in times of doubt that they too are not useless and incapable of doing anything. We are a long chain that needs every single one of us to be involved in it, to make it strong, tight, to bear the weight of what it means to be kingdom people together, working to establish what God wants for us in this world. No task is too small. Nothing that looks weak or, or maybe unimportant or not honorable, it all has a place in what God is doing in the kingdom. And I love this example of the story um, of how sometimes what we're doing, we might not realize the effect, but when God gives us a vision for the future that he has for us, and we follow that future, even if it might seem in the midst of it like it's not resulting in fruit that the world would call successful, that if we're following the vision, we're getting, our, we're getting foresight from God, then we can trust his plan. There's a story of Adoniram Judson. He was an American in the 19th century, and he felt called to Burma, where there was no presence of Christianity. The gospel had not been shared. 
And he felt a deep conviction from, from the Holy Spirit to go to Burma to serve and devote his life to sharing Christ. And he did so for 38 years. Amidst this journey, this process, he lost two wives to death and sickness. Seven, he lost seven of his 13 children. And he eventually died from a terrible sickness at sea. Even though he was imprisoned and persecuted for his work, he remained strengthened in his conviction to serve Christ. Judson once said, The path of self-denial is, to carnal eyes, a veiled path, a mystery of the divine kingdom. But if thou wilt do what thy hands find to do this hour, thou shalt find the path of self-denial open most wonderfully and delightfully before thee. Thou shalt find it sweet to follow thy dear Lord and Savior, bearing the cross, and shalt soon be enabled to say, Sweet is the cross above all sweets to souls enamored with thy smile. The guy who sacrificed his life to serve other people. After 10 years, Judson had 18 people in his church. Think about losing your family, and you look around, and with the eyes and the spirit of the world, you go, wow, I am a failure. But he stuck it out and spent 28 more years there in the face of what looked like failure. And now today, there are over 4 million Christians in Burma because of the work that he did. When we have the, the eyes illuminated by the Spirit of God, we will serve and sacrifice in ways that might seem small, might seem simple, or might seem like it's failing. But when we have the conviction of the Spirit telling us to sacrifice in these kinds of ways, we have no idea what will happen. Jesus, my Savior.